Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, tonight, I have Sam Bazo, the filmmaker of Blue Gold World Water Wars. Um, it's going to be a great show tonight. Uh, I'm going to put up a bit of a warning before we get started, just because it's uh, for some reason been a problem this month. Uh, the donations have not really been coming in this month, and I am in a lot of trouble. So uh, if anybody, any of you out there who listens to the show, enjoys the show, uh, can help out, please go to vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, click on the red donation widget. Uh, I really need to get that together, or I am actually even in danger of going off the air until I can get it settled. Um, this is really rare. It doesn't generally happen, but uh, financially things have been a little bit tougher this time because I had to pay my Skype bill for the year as well. So in any case, um, that being said, I'm going to move on to the much more exciting part of the show. Uh, uh, Mr. Sam Bazo, uh, please introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Um, well, um, tell them a little bit about yourself. Uh, I mean, like what, for example, got you uh, thinking outside the box? When did you get involved with activism or at least films about activism? Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about water when I started. I have a screenwriting background. And I, there's a science fiction movie called The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a 60s, 70s movie where David Bowie played an alien whose planet runs out of water. And so he comes to Earth to you know, become a businessman to get a hold of ours. And we were, the producer of that and I were writing a sequel and we thought we'd be clever and think about in the future if Earth was running out of water and how the species would handle it. And so my producer found the book Blue Gold, uh, The Corporate Theft of the World's Water Supply by Maud Barlow and Tony Clark. And I read it and it blew my mind. I, I couldn't believe that what was already happening in the world uh, was was much crazier than what we were coming up with for science fiction. And I just thought the information, it, it was a crime that it wasn't on the news yet. I didn't understand how that could be and thought I should um, do what I can to, to film it. And I contacted the authors and they were open to it and, and had the film rights to the book. So um, I started this journey. I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, so really, that's how I came in, through the filmmaking side, more than through the activism side. Interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's actually it's kind of telling when you think about it, because, you know, um, you were able to stumble across it, uh, you know, just randomly, and it's actually kind of good. I mean, I would say, like, there are activists, for example, who probably have known about this for a long time. Uh, but uh, I guess now I'd have to say that the experience of making this film, though I imagine especially because some of the stuff that's in this film is so powerful. Um, and uh, for those of you who are listening who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about flow. I'm sorry, we're talking about um, Blue Gold World Water Wars. Um, you can Google that and find the film um, narrated by Malcolm McDowell. Um, and uh, it's a really good film about the state of our water supply. Really scary film about the state of our water supply. Um, but uh, as I was going to say, you know, how did it did it change you as a person to to work on this project and to really see, you know, uh, some of the truths about this? I mean, because I mean, although the film is about water, I'm sure you learned a lot about corporatism and you know uh, other you know things that go along with the symptom that is the water problem. Yeah, it's a life changing experience when you when you go through something like that, and and it did help that I didn't know anything because I was able to ask 
what what maybe would be considered dumb questions to the interview people, like what is an aquifer? I had no idea, and things like that. I think help make the film into an audience-friendly film to to really present simply this this complex problem of the, the politics uh, that we live in. Um, and I came away really humbled, um, well, no, empowered in that I saw so many people, regular people, stand up and fight for water that, uh, you know, boot makers in Bolivia, um, you know, senior citizens in Wisconsin, just a, a number of people all over the world, and that the people do have power to take back their water and control their lives. But I was equally scared how unorganized or uninterested the world's government seems to be about the problem. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, it's it, one of the things that scares me the most about it. And it's like it occurred to me one day I was actually thinking about this about air. You know, it's like our air just keeps getting worse and worse. And, you know, I started wondering, are we ever going to have a utility company that pumps clean air into our homes? You know, and that's, you know, maybe think about water, you know, is that especially after I watched your film, um, you know, it, it's kind of a situation where it's like we're getting to a point where the, you know, they want to make water into a more profitable commodity that we are absolutely dependent on them to buy. And that's really dangerous when you think about it. Once you start to get into the point that I can own a quantity of what is required for people to live. I mean, you know, you can say that about a lot of things, but about water and air, you know, and food even, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's dangerous to ever get into the mindset that, you know, a company should just be able to own, you know, something, something like that, especially, you know, when you see trends that, you know, some companies just get too big for their britches, then, you know, imagine the power such a company would wield at that point. I don't think people understand that it's moving in that direction and how dangerous it is. Um, you know, that we're allowing that to happen. We see a little bit of it with the company Monsanto, um, and I'm, I'm hoping in a future show we're going to be doing about the film The Future of Food, uh, you know, just for those of you who want to look into Monsanto more. But, you know, just with the domination that they're doing over seeds is, is huge enough of in itself. But, but water is required for everything. And, um, that, you know, and so I guess... Um, you know, when you were on your journey, so to speak, I know like one of the one of the uh, interviews that you did actually was with um, uh, I, I guess it was a, a person from Nestle. Like their voice was disguised. Um, were they aware that they were going to be included in the film? No. Well, what happened with Nestle is I tried to get an interview, and they would do a phone interview, basically giving me the runaround. It was a two-hour interview, actually. I had to change tapes halfway through. I was recording the audio. And basically turned into that. They wouldn't give me an interview. So I ended up having to distort the voice just to use what was talked about on the phone. Um, you know, the only company that gave an interview, big company, was Coca-Cola. And I'm actually, again, what shocked me about that is they needed the questions two months in advance. And yet, even with a two months advance warning, they came up with an answer that was so ridiculous, I just proved it in, in one email on the way back to the hotel. I mean, I could go into that a little. Basically, Coca-Cola makes Dasani, which is a huge bottled water uh, product. And in Kenya, in parts of the world where they don't have clean water, they're able to sell this Dasani for sometimes four times as much as they would a bottle of Coke. And if you think about that, I mean, Coca-Cola costs 
at least three times more to make because they have to add syrup. There's a process to it instead of just throwing water in a bottle. So it's a, you know it's really criminal because these people depend on that product to live. And um, so I gave them too much notice on that. And the excuse they came up with was that uh, Dasani comes in plastic and the Coke there is in glass and you know plastic costs more. And Immediately, I just asked, well, then why don't you bottle Dasani in glass? And it stumped them. I mean, they didn't even think that I would ask that. It seems so obvious. And they said they tried it, but that the packaging was very popular. And just having known people in Kenya, they don't care about the packaging. They, they just want the water. And um, then what I ended up doing on the way back to the hotel is I thought, okay, well, if plastic is the reason that they're charging four times more for water than Coke, then it stands to reason that if we find a bottle of Coke in plastic, it, it will be more than the bottle of water in plastic. So my friend went to the market there in Kenya. I bought him a cell phone so he wouldn't get caught because you're not allowed to take pictures in Kenya in the stores for some reason. And he found that uh, even when plastic, they're selling water for four times as much. So it was a blatant, I don't want to say lie, I think that people were given false information that I talked to. But having two months head, head start warning that, that that's all they could come up with and it was so quickly disproven really scared me. You know, they, these companies are not, they're not just giant and able to buy up so much, but they really seem blatant about it and not concerned with uh, their image. I mean, Coke in, in India is, they put in a plant that sucks dry, you know, farms from all over and people have the protests. So we're really coming... To me, the whole thing is coming to a point where, you know, other systems of government, communism and, and socialism, we've seen all these systems fail uh, because of human uh, corruption. But it, what, it, what is important is to remember is all systems work on paper. They all were good ideas. And corruption is what destroys them. And I think we're reaching, we haven't seen the downfall of capitalism yet. And I think with water, we're, we're going to see it because it's crossing a line that they can't come back from. And as you said, is, is selling life, basically. And we're really testing the boundaries of, uh, of global economic trade and what, what should be traded, the tradable good and what should be provided and, and whose responsibility is what. And I really think it's the first domino push in, in, in seeing a, the downfall of at least global trade as we know it. You know, that's actually interesting because we were just talking like right before we came on here about uh, Zeitgeist Addendum. And I, I think now that you've, you've said that, you definitely should watch that film when you get an opportunity. I'll provide you with a link. But um, in any case, uh, you know, um, what you're talking about, about, you know, the, the way that capitalism is being impacted and, you know, what, you know, and how certain things are being marketed and certain things are not. But like, you know, there was another aspect of Monsanto was that they finally managed to make it constitutional to, uh, um, patent uh, living organisms. Uh, they, they started it with their own genetically modified organisms, but it's, the impl implications of that are huge, especially since they want to be able to also sue people who, are, you know, who get their genetically modified crops on their land and have nothing to do with it, whether it cross-pollinated, came over and on, you know, on wind or whatever, and they, and they are able to do this. They, they sue farmers like crazy, um, you know, for something that they had nothing to do with. It's not even, you know, you know, in many cases, they don't even want the stuff there. You know, and, and they, go ahead. Well, and, and the, you know, they might, they get away with it when it comes to certain products, and, and food is definitely an iffy one, but it's only the farmers that are fighting them. I mean, what, what fascinated me with water is every living person needs it, 
in a three-day, four-day period or, or you're dead. And, you know, the, what, the case of how complicated it gets, what you said with the seeds was in Bolivia, uh, where a company called Bechtel, the government sold all the water delivery system to Bechtel. They raised the prices so much that people were spending half their income on water, more than they paid for food. And it got so complicated that it was illegal for them to capture rainwater. It was the same kind of situation. Oh, wow. And yeah, um, to the point, bad. Yeah, and then, of course, the bootmaker, this humble guy, little guy named Oscar Oliveira, led a revolt that led to a revolution. But initially, the government, instead of saying, all right, we made a mistake, the people are revolting, they sent out military snipers to shoot the people to protect the investments of a foreign company. And um, after that, seven people died. They still didn't stop, and eventually they did throw the company out. But that's, that's what we're dealing with. And I think it surprised them, unlike seeds or healthcare or anything else, where people will turn their cheek ultimately because they have a life to live, um, they won't do it with water. And around the world, you see that. And that's ultimately the good news for the people, but uh, the bad news for global trade, because that's why people aren't going to take it. That's, you know, and honestly, they shouldn't take it. And some commodities, you know, should simply should not be something that could be bought and sold. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, and that's, um, I mean, it's, I understand that people, for example, they, they, they say that they want everything privatized because they don't want governments owning things, but... Um, you know, I just, especially when you consider that government and the corporation are generally the same body anyway. Uh, corporations just simply buy government. You see it more in situations like that. I mean, I'm still stunned over that because I just rewatched your film. Like you pointed out the, the, the rainwater thing. You make it illegal for somebody to gather their own rainwater. That's just ridiculous. And the fact that, you know, they could pull that off and make that illegal, you know, that, that's a perfect example of that kind of corruption. Go ahead. No, yeah, what you said, the one important point is, uh, you know, you're right. There's this blurry line between government and corporations now, and that's really the key factor. I think anytime you talk against corporations, people think you're anti-capitalist or that you're a communist. Like, for, I, for instance, I believe in capitalism as far as uh, competition making the best product. You know, um, my wife grew up in communist uh, Eastern Europe, and, you know, there's no incentive. People come to work drunk. I mean, so I'm not against uh, capitalism. But unregulated capitalism is the problem. And, and as long as lobbying is considered legal instead of uh, – it's basically bribery. And as long as lobbying is legal and corporations can get involved, that involved with supporting and funding uh, government, that's the problem. And, and, and you know, that's where uh, there's no lack of regulation. For instance, um, the, the big, big surprise I had in the film, um, people – you know, initially I thought, well – like everyone, well, desalination will save us, so what's the problem? And I really tried to dive into that. And what's, what's ending up happening is there's a total lack of regulation of companies polluting our water. So a company doesn't have to spend the money to clean its water so much. They dump it into a river. Then what's happening is some of these same companies like GE and uh, all the big the water companies are building desalination plants or wastewater treatment plants and then charging to clean up the water that they polluted. So they're making money twice. They're saving money by getting the politicians to, you know, keep regulation away. And then they're making it again by then charging to clean it. And that's the danger with uh, depending on desal is desalination plants are very expensive. And if, 
we ever get to the point where we're dependent on them, then we're basically, whoever owns them owns us, whether that's a corporation or a government. And um, the simple truth is water is in the ground all around us. It's been put where it really needs to be. We're over pumping it from the ground and letting the wastewater go in the ocean, and that's the problem, and we're turning to a desert. As long as we do that, uh, you know, we cannot, we, there is a point for desalination, I think, if a government, if the public owned a desalination plant and it was used solely to replenish an aquifer or refill a groundwater, I think that would be very beneficial. But that's not what you see happening. You see the big water privatization companies who have been kicked out of Bolivia and who have been kicked out of South America, where they see their uh, attempt to buy a com country's water not work, they're not going big into the desalination business because that's uh, going to be where no one can really revolt against them at all because they're going to own all the cards. So really have to be careful of that too. They're, they're clever and they're uh, changing the ways in which they own us. And that's, you know, I don't think that um, a lot of people really realize that. I mean, water is something that they see right away, uh, but it's, there are a lot of things like that. I mean, you know, like I said, water is probably the most obvious symptom. Um, but, you know, there are so many other commodities. You know, we talk about food and, you know, things like that that are, that are also basically kind of being bartered in such a way. And when you think about it, you know, one of the arguments we get into a lot in the Venus Project is uh, when we talk about, for example, declaring uh, the world's resources as common heritage, we're obviously meaning things like water as well. You know, people get scared. Well, what's going to happen if, you know, like if, you know, if some group of people takes control of the world's resources? And then, and then like we point out the, the scenarios that you're talking about, and it's like in this kind of weird, corrupt version of capitalism that we live in, you know, it wouldn't be any kind of elected body. It wouldn't be anybody that was answerable to anybody but themselves. It would be some company that just owned all water, you know, and that to me actually is a lot more terrifying in the long run than, than any system where people come together and collectively use water, you know, um, and take care of it as it's, you know, as part of everybody's responsibility. It's like, one of the things that, you know, it occurs to me is that people don't realize that they're taking, you know, they're taking it for granted, you know, in the United States because they don't see the problem. I mean, I, it just occurred to me the other day, I'm like, man, I take a shower every day. I can't imagine being in a situation where, you know, the, those poor people in those other countries, you know, who don't even have wells, you know, right. I can't imagine living like that. You know, it, there's, there's a few things to talk about that are important. I don't mean to interrupt you. Okay, the, um, First of all, as far as water being a common good, you're, you're absolutely right. And Uruguay uh, is the first country that actually put it in their constitution that water is a, is a, international, is a human right um, after they experienced bad privatization where schools were cut off or not being able to pay. And um, in the, at the end of the month, very soon, the UN is actually, for, it's an historic opportunity um, where Maude Barlow and others have pushed where it's going to be talked about making it a human right. And that's the key to everything, to start the foundation of all the laws. So I encourage people to, to, to look into that. Um, I'll post a link on my site, and, and you can um, see where that's going. The other thing is, uh, with the United States, you're right, um, you know, as far as not seeing the problem, the, big, you know, the problems are just as big here. Where they're more political than... Uh, you know, urgent as far as not having clean water access. I started wondering why, why does a country not have clean water access like Kenya? And um, because I, was, I think when you grow up in the West, you're kind of 
I was at least naive in thinking, well, these poor countries must not have anything. They must not have resources. Why would they be poor? And, um, you know, going to Kenya, it was horizon to horizon of tea fields. It was just so lush. I was so surprised. And I just asked him, why, why are you poor? I mean, you have so much ex to export here. Why don't you have running water? And, and that really got to the World Bank. And that got to that these countries are not allowed to sell their resources at a fair price because the World Bank holds a World War II debt on them and, and therefore charges tariffs to pay back that debt, which they never can pay, and keep the country down. And that, that's why really what we call the current global trade system is really a form of colonialism where uh, the, the, the few rich countries are making sure that these countries that have all the resources aren't allowed to really make enough money to get on their own feet and so keep dependent on us. But in the U.S., the water, the third thing is, um, you know, we do see it. Our, our aquifer under the farmland is running out, the Ogallala. It's, it's, it, it, it's, we pump 15 times more than goes back into it. It is drying up. Um, there's already schemes talked about uh, bringing water from Canada because Canada is very rich in water uh, through great canals. Uh, where I live in California is the worst. It shouldn't exist. And, you know, we, we bring water from as far as 1,500 miles away. And it really gets into the point where all animals, you know, look for water holes. All other animals, they hunt that water holes. They're, they're out to look where the water is. And we want the water to come to us wherever we decide is a good place to live. And that, that pattern is also going to change. Um, in America, there's not really enough regulation on development. People can build houses whether there's uh, enough water in that region to add a population or not. And Bolinas, California, was brought up in the film as a one place uh, in Northern California where they fought for 14 years. They said, we've reached a population where we don't have any more water. You can't grow anymore. And the, and the uh, government funded by companies fought that for 14 years because it would interfere with commerce. It would interfere with new construction, new money. But they ended up winning, and, and to this day, they, they are not allowed to grow more until they can prove that there's water coming in. That we're going to need to see, and we'll see one way whether we're ready or not in America. Um, but also in America, we have a great lack of uh, laws protecting things. Uh, in, in the Southwest, where they're running out of water, they have a use-it-or-lose-it law. And this was, this was something that was in the gold rush days when they were first staking claim to land. Um, that you had to prove you needed the water in order to, to get that much right. But that law has been distorted and perverted or, or basically left alone, where now a farmer has to use up all the water they're given or they don't get it next year. And there's these farmers, they're perfectly aware that they're draining the aquifer. They don't want to be doing this. But if they want water next year for the farm, they have to. The law says they have to just pump it and, and let it go down the river into the ocean. So it's absolutely ridiculous, uh, the lack of regulation. And these are the kind of things we'll, we're seeing in America and uh, will continue to. You know, that's one of the things that always ends up being kind of a problem when you're trying to figure out how to handle these things. Because like a free market capitalist, for example, will tell you, you know, all regulations are bad. Simply deregulate absolutely everything and then everything will be better. You know, a socialist will, will want to put up, you know, perhaps too much control on things. And it's, we live in this weird situation in the United States, like in the state of Michigan, for example, the, you know, they're trying to patch the, the flaws in capitalism in our, in our state with socialist programs that, of course, there, are no tax, there is no tax money to pay for. So, you know, the, 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 the state basically implodes. 
on itself. Um, right. You know, and that's well, that's but that's different when it's uh, you know when it's healthcare when it's something that's going to cost money. But to regulate a to make to change regulations that just simply say a farm cannot shouldn't doesn't need to waste its water anymore uh, in order to get the rights next year would just be pen on it's just ink on paper it wouldn't cost anything. So there really is no even pure capitalist argument for this stuff. Uh, most of it is just you know a company not being able to pollute a river as much as they want. That that's where I think regulation is needed, and it's very hard to argue that it's any good to a company to be able to do that, uh, you know, because it saves them money and in, in, in not being able to pollute. You're right. I mean, we're coming to the point where we're crossing the line of um, of where free, you know, the free enterprise needs to stop um, and where where it succeeds. That's you know, and it's it's always going to be. I mean, unfortunately, since these regulatory bodies are generally bought, you know, purchasable by the corporate entity you're always going to have a problem there and you can't really get the regulations that you need. Um, and that's, that's another reason why, I mean, it's a, we talk about, um, you know, I understand what you mean by, for example, when you brought up that, you know, you're a, you said your wife lived in a communist country, was it? Um, yeah. And, and, uh, in Eastern Europe. and so there's no, so there was, you said there was no motivations, people come to work drunk or whatever. And, um, you know, but I, I think that it's, it's like a double edged sword because, you either have a situation where people take responsibility for their own, you know, uh, resources and they are their own communities, or you have a situation where somebody else will be more than happy to make, you know, more out of, you know, out of what, you, you know, basically take more from than what you're going to get out of them, you know, if they're going to do it on the other side of things. So the profit motive is 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 almost actually in its own aspect is is a is a bad motive if it gets out of control, and I guess. You know, trying to seek the balance to that will forever be tough. Um, I, I know, uh, we'll, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it at a later time whenever you get a chance to watch Zeitgeist the Denim and check out the Venus Project. But um, when it comes to water, though, uh, you know, I was actually was going to ask you, um, what was it like to work with Malcolm McDowell? Uh, he's great. I'm a Clockwork Orange is my favorite film of all time. So, um, and the producer of that was also the producer of Man Who Fell to Earth, who was writing the script with. So, uh, it was really wonderful to meet Malcolm. And um, you know, uh, it, it, it's part of the crazy things to do with uh, not having. You know, this is an independent film. So, I always remember I he said, "Oh, well, let's go have lunch." And because he he, he didn't work for any upfront money. I, I wanted to buy him lunch, but I knew I only had enough to either buy lunch or pay for gas to get home. But uh, I decided I'm going to buy lunch, you know, and I'm glad I did. But it's like uh, the stress of driving home and seeing that light on. It's really weird. You meet one of your heroes in the first half of the day, and then you're worried about gas getting home the next. And it's it's stressful uh, when you're independently financing these things. But Malcolm, um, he's amazing. That's actually, you know, it's um, – I mean, I always wonder about that is, you know, like these people who narrate these things, you know, you're sitting there and you're reviewing this information and, you know, you know you've got to be memorizing it because you've got to be able to say, I mean, like, I mean, did, how did he react to the information? Was he aware of this problem before he narrated the film? Someone in, uh, the film was in uh, Tokyo, actually. I got to go there and it was wonderful. And someone there pointed out to me, and I didn't know this, that Malcolm was in a film, I think it, I think it was called Tank something where he, where he played a water uh, a water baron where he was the head of a water company or someone hoarding water and I didn't know that 
But um, I did I did choose them because uh, of little Alex. I I really wanted to make this. You know, water to me is not a political. Pro it's not about whether you're liberal or conservative. It's not about religion or anything like that. So I really went out of my way. You know, I'm glad that Malcolm's most famous for playing a crazy guy because even little Alex will run out of water. You know, and I, I didn't want it to be the typical someone you're used to doing uh, any kind of liberal film because uh, I don't want people to have that. I tried to find the conservatives in the film in the America who are fighting for water. You know, Howard Dearborn, um, you know, is a, is a hard, hardcore Republican guy in, in, in uh, Freiburg, Maine. But when it came to Poland Springs setting up a plant there and starting to suck the area dry, um, he led a group of people who, uh, well, the company, to, to make people happy, gave away a case of bottled water to each of them to say, see, we're not so bad. And how Howard led a group to take the water and dump it back into the river where they got it from originally. And, and that's a hardcore Republican. So, I mean, it's very important. Um, and that's why I also pick, was very happy to get Malcolm. It's very important to, to realize that this affects everybody and we really have to put aside everything else. And, um, you know, this is the alien that lands and brings everyone together. Uh, water is the only form of life that we know of on the, in the universe. Everywhere we look for life, we look for water. And it, it's the one thing that, um, you know, it has to be uh, fought for first and foremost without, you know, consideration of anything. I was surprised, uh, you know, in learning about the, the Mayan theory, you know, there was a theory I, I didn't realize about the Mayans, how they fell in the film, and uh, where they, uh, they, they were rapidly expanding, so they started cutting down the forest to make more farms, and the when you cut down trees, trees actually hold the water in place in a watershed, and so the ground will dry if the tree's not there. And the soil started to erode, and there was a mass collapse in agriculture, and that's what got them. And, and exploring that more, most civilizations that fall, fall because of a massive collapse of, a sudden massive collapse of agriculture directly related to soil erosion and water. So, you know, we're dealing with a serious, serious problem. A, a lot of people want to point it out as an environmental issue, and um, I, I tried to go against that, too. I mean, you know, global warming, there's a lot of focus on that, and it's very important, but the reality is if it gets a little hotter, we'll still we'll adjust. The world will be different, but we'll be here. Um, I like to say, you know, the tagline for the film is that global warming is an issue of how we live, and the water crisis is an issue of if we live. Uh, it, it's very, very different and shouldn't be tagged into the into the environmental left-wing uh, problem. It, it is a human problem, and I, I wish I'd see... I, I get sad when I see people that uh, react to real hardcore right-wing people reacting badly to the film because they say, oh, you're an anti-capitalist. I mean, it's very important that we get this right, and, and water management is key to, to the species. No, for sure. And I, you know, and I think it's, it's interesting, actually, because, like, you know, Malcolm did a beautiful job in the very beginning of the film setting the stage for that. And when he points out, you know, this is not a film about saving, you know, the planet. It's a you know, film about saving ourselves, um, you know, and the way that he, you know, set the stage, you know, explaining what that, you know, man went through when he dehydrated himself in the desert looking for gold, you know, but... Um, and I, you know, and I do look at it that way. Is that it, it's kind of sad to me that the right and left paradigm, uh, it, it, it's actually, it almost seems like it's kind of a distraction. It's like they tell you, well, you can either choose to have freedom of your money or freedom of who you are. You know, 
you, you can't have health care and have civil rights. It's like the way they divide things up, it's like, you know, it's one of the reasons actually why George Washington said in his farewell address that he was very leery of the, uh, the party system. And virtually everything he said in his farewell address became, you know, became true. It was, you know, we're going to be worried about the good of our party and not the good of our country. You know, and now we're kind of to a stage where it's the good of the earth that we all live on. And um, it's, I think that I see where you're going with that because I get into that all the time because there's a lot of argument, for example, about the global warming issue. And I see people, they just get so vehement about it. And most of them are all, you know, armchair, you know, people who don't really know what they're talking about anyway. They all read it somewhere, you know, and it's, it's like, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of stuff, the little brief film about, uh, yeah, yeah, great. Right. It's, it is a great film. And then I, and then they see the, uh, the story of cap and trade or, you know, or maybe she mentions global warming and then this huge chunk of activists then don't want to listen to anything she says anymore because she talked about global warming. Exactly. (laughs) And that's why I was very careful to kind of point out that this was different because there's been this trend. Maybe it's because of, uh, Al Gore's film, Inconvenient Truth, where people associated, you know, saving a planet we live on, you know, our, the most basic animal necessity to a, a left or right wing issue. And it's just not. Um, and, and it's been, you know, that's been interesting in water, too, is seeing the, the, the variety of people who stand up and fight. Um, in Wisconsin, you know, the only people that succeeded that I knew of in driving a bottled water company out were... Um, senior citizens in Wisconsin who, you know, they're religious, they hunt, they're, they're like very right-wing and, um, you know, just more more simple townsfolk, but they're the only ones that managed to put up a fuss enough with the government. It took them years and a lot of money and a lot of writing where it wasn't popular anymore for the government to let Nestle come there, even though they were going to lose a lot of money, and they did end up kicking them out. Um, and then that's when they ran off to Michigan where they set up smarter. They just set up base right away in Michigan, started pumping right away, and then dealt with the legal consequences after as people there fought. And, and that story is fascinating because another group of people there in Michigan then raised a million, million dollars with like garage sales and uh, just anything they could. The citizens had to take it upon themselves to fight for their water that was being drained. The government wasn't coming to help. And they got their day in court, and they won, and, they, and, and, the, and the judge shut down Nestle. And that seemed a huge victory. But even though it took them a year to get their day in court, within three days, for no good reason, the, the, the whole thing was overturned, and, and, and Nestle is allowed to pump. So something clearly happened there uh, politically, and, and you, know, you can speculate what, but it's... Uh, it's amazing how they adapted from being kicked out of Wisconsin to immediately knowing what they had to do to survive uh, in Michigan. And they even went so far as to create a slap suit against the son of the leader of the citizens group to try to scare her from fighting them. So it becomes very vicious very quickly. And, um, you know, if these companies need water, which, you know, obviously bottled and drink companies need it, and they get so huge, we really are going to look at a, a time where, you know, free enterprise or not, they're going to have to stop expanding. There's only so much resource for them to take. And, um, you know, those, those fights get very interesting, too. Well, actually, as a Michigan resident, um, I could pipe in and point out that um, I, I can understand exactly why it was so easy for them to get, around, get in around here. And it's because the state government here is so desperate to try to find ways to provide jobs 
because of the you know the the drying up auto industry that has either been automated or outsourced. Um, that's what we call the zeitgeist movement, the technological unemployment effect. Um, uh, basically, you know, it's it doesn't surprise me at all that they were able to come in here and do that, because um, basically, you know, it's it's a situation where the the governor, uh, Granholm is her name right now, you know, she's got a lot of pressure on her from the constituents. They want jobs, uh, and anything that's going to develop in this country is going or in this country in this state is probably going to be welcomed with open arms. And I don't, and so many people here are so desperate that I, you know, it's, I don't know necessarily that they're, you know, I'm, I'm actually very happy that they got together and, and worked on that. Um, but I, I, know, I, I guess I'm, what I was trying to get at here before I rambled too much about it, just from being a Michigan resident is that I can understand why they came here. And as the economy gets depressed, you know, it's just, it's the same reason they get away with it in these third world countries, you know, is that, the people are so desperate for any form of development, you know, kind of interest in their country, in their country, that they don't really necessarily see the big picture. And I think that the reason that water is dangerous is because this is the kind of thing that, you know, once it's gone, it, it's not coming back. You know. It, yeah, and that's um, that's really important because in Tokyo, I remember the press were asking, well, Tokyo has a lot of water, and they actually have a very good system. Japan, they they actually uh, the best public system in the world, arguably, where they this workers have stethoscopes and go around at night listening for leaks in the city. You know, they're very good. And they were asking, well, why is this a problem here? And and the answer is because they import 40% of their food. And you know, these countries that they're importing from, right now they're desperate, as you say, for jobs or for money, and they will continue working. But when it gets to a point where they're going to either run out of water, they either can make crops to export or drink and not die that week, that we're going to start seeing countries unwilling to export anymore. And that's why it's also so dangerous, especially with food, to get into any kind of global dependency that, that we're in. That's, yeah, that's very true. And that's why I said, like, you know, if, if I was thinking when you, when you pointed out, you're like, free market or no, there needs to become a point where, We've reached our limit on this sort of thing, and it, and, and that regulation doesn't mean you're you're totally against capitalism. It, it's a government's job to protect its people, and 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 uh, you know, get clean water and air are. You, you cannot argue that people don't need those. You can argue about healthcare and everything, but you cannot argue about those two things. And that's why a lot of people, in a way, I'm kind of glad that water they crossed this line because it. it it's doomed to fail. People won't take it. It's just a matter of how far and how bad it has to get, how many people have to suffer before uh, that change occurs. Right. And that's, it, it does, it is like, you know, we were actually talking about this yesterday when I had the, the energy action coalition people on my show um, is that I, I'm afraid that it's, it's going to come down to it that, you know, that a lot of the people who are at the top of this are not really going to realize there's a problem until it's in their own front door. You know, until a rich person, you know, no offense to those who are rich who are still also activist oriented, so I'm not trying to profile here, but it's going to take, you know, people who are not aware of these things turning on their faucet and then going, oh dear, uh, I, I need to prepare for, a, you know, a, a big fancy dinner for all of my friends and I don't have any water. What happened here? You know, it's, it's going to take stuff like that. Because a lot of cases, these people just have no idea, you know, or maybe they're going to want to go out on their jet ski and their lake is dried up. <laughs> well, what I see, what I see happening, like in Southern California, is a perfect example. There's a lot of money here. Um, 
uh, and so I think the problem, I think we'll be able to keep importing water from further and further away. You already just drive two hours north of LA and, and you see farmers, you know, dry farms, you know, say water needed and things like that. The problem with any city start keep taking water is you're taking it from your farmland, which are where you grow food. And now you're saying, well, we'll import it. And, and there's the big chain problem. But I think in a place that has money, like Southern California, it will just keep happening, keep happening. We'll keep buying it, keep going further away until, until the people somewhere start fighting enough that the government has to step in and say, well, California, you can't take more. And then what happens? Then you, you have to ultimately start looking at people living where the water is and living within a watershed um, like every other animal species, going where the water is instead of just sitting and saying, I want it here in this desert I live in. That's, you know, the thing that really terrified me. I was just, I was watching the end of the film when they go into the, you know, the water war part where, you know, literally, you know, battles were fought over water supplies on in kind of a small scale, you know, the local farmers trying to blow up that aqueduct that was going into LA um, you know, and that part where they were building, like, you know, that's another really crazy part where they were, that, that dam that was being built that was yeah. going to turn all of the water away from one of the states. Yeah, and in Arizona. Came, yeah, and it came down to the National Guard having to go out there and somebody put like a, a cannon on their tourism. Yeah, it was a comical thing that the coast, I think, I forget who, so I don't want to say, but in the film, uh, but brought out a cannon on the boat and said, I'm going to blow up the dam. And the cannon really couldn't blow up the dam, uh, but but it was uh, you know it was the symbol there that that got the government to finally say all right we'll 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 deal with this. But dams have always been contentious that way. I mean in India I brought up a story of uh, uh, you know one side of the river the dam took the the water and gave it to the farms on the other side and and actually an actor was kidnapped from one of the sides a famous film star in India with the ransom demand that you get the give the water back and. Those are the kind of things we, that are happening everywhere, um, everywhere that you just don't think about. But a dam by nature is causing problems because you're basically stopping uh, water from getting somewhere. And, and you, you'll see, uh, I mean, part of the solutions would really be to decommission dams as far as getting back to uh, replenishing our groundwater supply. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for, I think it's hard to say that because dams are, if you see a, a big dam, it's such a cool, I mean, you know, engineering feat of what humans have achieved in, in, in building. And they were built for good reason. It, it was the best way to get electricity at the time. But now we don't need it. We have solar. We have other ways. And now we see that a dam is really, it's holding back all this water that now is not moving, sits in a reservoir that gets stagnant, is filled with mercury from flooding the, the land that, as it filled, and is useless. And then it's cutting off nutrients from going downstream, which is further eroding land downstream and killing farms. So, it, you know, we have to adapt. And that, that's a one way that's a clear way to adapt would be to start decommissioning dams, getting our electricity in other ways. Um, so hopefully we'll see that. That's, you know, and I, I guess it, it is going to come down to, you know, that having to be a requirement in the end, uh, you know, is that, you know, when we talk about this too, you know, we, we look at solar and, you know, when we're going to have all these deserts, we take all the water, I guess there'll be plenty of places to set up solar farms, but, you know, wind farms are another option. And obviously, you know, um, the, I think one of the major silver bullets that doesn't get enough attention is geothermal energy. Um, and it's, one of the other things that, you know, activists have to work on is making people aware of the fact that 
a lot of these technologies exist yeah. and, you know, and that they actually are viable. I remember talking to one guy, um, you know, because we were discussing the viability of the Venus project and he was like, you know, I said, well, we could power the earth using geothermal energy. And he's like, geothermal, that's Star Trek. That's not real. You know, and I was like, are you aware that 70% of Iceland's electricity is all geothermal? And he, and had, that, he had no idea. Why, yeah. But that's why I think it's, uh, you know, it's so important to say, when I say regulation, I also mean legislation. I mean, all these problems can be solved if, if at the UN level or at an international level there were some very simple laws set up about what energy you can and can't use. And what I don't understand is why instead of fighting this, the big water companies aren't getting into that kind of energy. Why aren't oil companies buying the solar? Why aren't they getting into the solar industry? Instead of fighting it until there's every drop's gone, Get in, get into it, embrace it, and make money off that. You know, it can still you shift into what needs to happen. Uh, you know, ironically, the you know the dams were built in in America at least um, during the Great Depression as the you know the, the New Deal, the big hope. And here we are again in another depression. I mean, the New Deal could be all the jobs that it would take to, to take them down and to build solar. And you know, there could be a new New Deal with you know that that would solve all this. Um, and, and, but that's what it's going to take. It's just the simple, you know, realizing that all this will create jobs if we have to change things uh, and, and, and embracing it instead of, um, you know, waiting until we absolutely have to. That's, you know, and it, I think that, I mean, I can tell you at least just from my own studies, I mean, I could be wrong, but it, it generally tends to look like the reason that they don't want us getting into those other kinds of energy is because, they feel that they can, you know, they have more control over the profit margin with the with the fossil fuels and stuff. Um, you know, it's like the the artificial you know rise in gas prices, where they're telling us that they had to do that, even though they were recording record profits to their you know their shareholders. Um, you know, that's it's it's easier to get away with that. Like you set up geothermal plants, um, electricity as a commodity becomes as common as water and air do. Um, right. It's and that they don't want that. They they want money, large quantities of it, you know, um, to essentially to make the world go round. Because that's essentially it's like if you've ever watched the film Collapse, but yeah. uh, you know he talks about you know just all the things that oil goes into, and whether he's right about peak oil or not, it doesn't change the fact that obviously there's a problem with oil, or we wouldn't be fighting over it all you know all over the you know the world. Um, and there is you don't realize how much oil goes into everything. You know, everything that you're, you're dealing with in your day-to-day -day life, almost virtually all the products in question, you know, use a lot of oil. One of the things that your film exposed is I don't think people realize how much water gets expended in the creation of products. Like the amount, I forgot the amount, like to, to, to make an automobile, it was it's huge. crazy, yeah, and that, that, the virtual water we'll talk about. I mean, you know, and we talked a little bit about it. Food is the ultimate virtual water situation. Virtual water is... It's not just about water itself and moving water. It's very hard to move mass quantities of water. People have tried it with giant bags, you know, that have been filled with water and towed across the ocean, but it's unstable. It's difficult and expensive. So when you're talking about a country uh, exporting its water, you're talking about it exporting goods that it takes water to create, where they have to take the water they would use for their people, grow food or make a car. I mean, factories use a lot of water in the laser pro in the process of making everything metal everything takes cooling and it takes a lot of water uh, microchips take tons of water and you know those are very very 
needed in the world. So we really have to look at, at those and everything and how much water it takes to make it. And if that's, if we're dependent on exporting that to stay alive, then we're, we're basically selling our water off. The one case that I was thought frightening uh, in the film was Europe. You know, you think Europe has a lot of water, but they don't have enough water for its, they're, they're, they're on the verge of, you know, running out of water for their people so much so that they don't have enough water to grow their own roses. So all roses in Europe, almost all of them, come from uh, this one lake in Africa, in Kenya, called Lake Navasha. And there's these uh, European-owned rose plantations, just giant, giant rose plantations surrounding the lake. The lake is one of the two biggest freshwater lakes in Africa. They need this lake. And um, it, it could be dry in five years because they're pumping all this water just to, just to send roses to Europe so the rose shops, flower shops can have roses. Um, and it's crazy. And I documented one, there was a documentary filmmaker there who lived there named Joan Root. Um, and she, um, Joan Root, she tried to stop this or, or expose it. And she was uh, assassinated in her home. And, you know, that happened just a couple years ago. So this isn't some crazy uh, far out thing. It's happening now. And, and, it, and we have to look at things like roses in Kenya that are, that are to take water to be made as much as uh, drinking water. You know, and that's, it's, it's, it, when you think about the colossal waste of resources for something as stupid as roses, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. You know, like, okay, yeah, you want to go buy a flower for your girlfriend or whatever, but that you put the damn thing, ironically, in a cup of water, and then it's, it's gone. You know, yeah, you it's completely, be, it's a, a total example of a, just a profit for profit's sake business uh, where it has no useful service to anybody. And um, again, we have to get over this that right, I think we have to get over where if you regulate anything then you're against capitalism totally and, and really get to a point where there are things that are basic human rights and things that aren't. Uh, and and I, I hope that happens soon. Well, that's, you know, and it, I think that um, you're absolutely right about that, and I, I see that about a lot of different aspects, you know, about this is that, you know, and I, I think that part of the problem is is that it's it's almost as if the, you know, the free market advocates, because, you know, I, I used to be involved in the Libertarian Party, so I've, I've heard all of this stuff, but um, they take it so far. They believe, for example, that the consumer alone will be the balancing factor and that, therefore, you don't need these kinds of regulations and I, I don't think that they understand that having control over certain things, the consumer doesn't really have a lot of power, you know, it, to stop you. You know, it's like, well, I can, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to boycott this company? Well, this company has all the water. I can I think, boycott uh, that for a week, and then I'm dead. Exactly. I think Mexico, and the, the big example of that, you know, Mexico cities might be the first city along with either that or Sydney or um, – Beijing to run out of water. And what they're doing is, there are 20, I forget how many million people in, in Mexico City, they're pumping water from further and further away from their farms. Um, they pump so much water out of under Mexico City that it's, their sinkholes and churches are starting to sink into the ground and, and be slanted. They're in bad, bad shape. And yet, there's speculation there that while um, President Fox was president, he's not now, he used to be the CEO of Latin America Coca-Cola. And then during his uh, time as president, he granted concessions of all this water to Coca-Cola, either as a favor or as, you know, to get campaign finances, who knows. But 
while the city is running out of water, um, you know, he's giving it away to Coca-Cola. If that's at all true, and then Coke denies it, of course, you know, that's really a great example of what you were saying. Right. And that's, when you think about it, I mean, it's, it, it isn't something that's readily translatable. You know, you, you, you see the big numbers. It's actually something, um, another film, this film was put out by the Socialist Party, but they did make a lot of good points about um, just how it's hard to get through to people about some of the effects, the negative effects of certain capitalistic practices. It's called capitalism and other kids stuff. And he was trying to point out how many people died, you know, how many children died a day from poverty. And then he's like, since big numbers don't really mean anything, let's just say that we, you know, if you, you know, you had a jumbo jet full of children and it crashed into a mountain. People would pay attention to that. Yeah. All right. Well, now we're going to send, you know, I, he gave a huge number of jumbo jets into mountains. And now you have the situation with poverty. People don't, people don't grasp, you know, how big this problem is. Um, and it's almost as if the bigger the numbers you quote, it almost seems like the, the more uh, insensitive to the problem they are. You know, yeah, and it, 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 when you, but when you think about it, it's it, there. There is a limit. I guess it's going to have to be a matter of you're going to have to talk to these people about. It. It's not good for their bottom line, even if we can't. If if there are not consumers alive to buy their products because we're dead because we didn't get any water. Oh, you know, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. And then that's it's it's counterproductive even in a capitalistic sense. But it's. The people are pulling uh, you know, in all directions. You know, the labor pulls too hard, and then so then that results, you know, in companies going overseas, and then you know, taking advantage of companies, we are companies of countries where people, Freudian slip, where people uh, um, are so desperate for work that they'll work for next to nothing. You know, and then that means that you know, labor gets pulled away from. Well, now labor doesn't have any money as consumers, so they can't buy anything. It's like it, the tug of war, is, I think, is slowly getting to that point where you see in the films where, you know, they're having a tug of war and then both sides slide down and fall in the mud. And I'm just I'm, what I'm worried about is, is who's taking, you know, who's keeping their eye on the very permanent possibilities here that we could do something that is not going to allow neither the right nor the left to continue living, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, one point that I was kind of surprised that brought that to a head was also in Africa. I mean, you have to realize it takes two to make this happen with water. I mean, a company by nature is set up to make money. You know, they're not social service agencies, so, you know, no, I don't think they should be able to buy water. At the same time, they're doing their natural thing by wanting to and by trying to buy it. And you really have to ask, why are these governments selling it? Why are they, you know, they were the ones elected by the people to protect them and serve them. Why are they selling the basic need of life to this company? And, and it's always for corrupt reasons, um, you know, uh, but in Africa, for instance, you know, why, why don't they have running water there? Uh, the government is something so basic. And the irony there is the government is maybe saving money from not giving them running water, but therefore you have all these waterborne diseases. People go to polluted rivers and drink. But then the government does pay for health care. So they end up having to pay for these people when they're sick in the hospital Whereas if they just gave them pipes with clean water to begin with, they would avoid that cost. So I, they're not saving any money, but and yet they do this. And that's almost more scary is that there is no grand master scheme. It seems to be haphazard and random, and, and, and that's where you're going to get collapse, you know, when, when, when even the corrupt ones don't seem to have it together enough to prevent the whole house of cards from falling. You know, that's actually another thing that um, the gentleman from Energy Action Coalition pointed out yesterday 
was that when it comes to the issues of alternative energy, for example, it's actually more expensive in the long run to use fossil fuels, but you don't see it because the people who are making the money are not the ones who have to clean up the mess. Right. You know, but as far as like overall money pulled out of the economy, fossil fuels are way more of a drag on the economy overall, just not to the oil companies and the coal companies in question. So it's, it's, it's like essentially, I, I guess, as um, Annie Leonard pointed out, you know, it's externalizing those costs. You know, who else, you know, somebody else is going to have to pay for that, you know, as they pointed out in the story of stuff. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's, and as long as that continues, and, you know, it's, I, I don't know that, you know, I hope that we can end this vicious cycle, but it's going to require a lot of efforts like yours, um, like Flow for the Love of Water. Have you seen that film? You know, I did um, because Maude Barlow, uh, who is the author of Blue Gold, you know, interviewed in that, and so did a couple other people in the film. It, that was surreal. I, I know Irina, I, I've, I've uh, emailed with her since. Um, but it's it's weird for a filmmaker to see another film dealing with similar subjects because you, I, of course, made the film the way I want to make it, and it's kind of like a dream to watch someone else's version of a, of a similar problem. Um, that's the only other water film I've seen so far. I haven't seen Thirst or One. Um, but, you know, again, the other scary point is why wasn't all this on the news as it was happening? Right. You know, and, and then you start wondering who controls the media. I mean, this is obviously newsworthy information and stories um, in the film. And why did it take someone like me, you know, who read the book and just had a camera and wanted to, you know, spend his own money to go report it? Why wasn't it reported before? That's a whole other issue. But, um it's been life-changing, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to see the people see it. You know, I get emails all the time. I had someone change her major to environmental studies because of it uh, at schools. Uh, there was an activist named uh, Martin Robinson, Robertson that approached me after Toronto screening, and he wanted to help, you know, screen it all over the world. He had a company that did that. Uh, and he helped set up like 100 screenings in 38 countries, you know, on World Water Day uh, for free. And it turned out he had terminal cancer, and I didn't realize that. So he, he's gone now. He passed away. But, you know, he saw the film and said, this is important. He spent some of the last times of his life making sure people see it. So, you know, it's it definitely when you, when you hear about water and what happens to us, you're, uh, you hit a chord that people will jump at, and, and that's the good news. So uh, it, was, it was a pleasure making this film that way. We're down actually to the last one minute of the live portion of the show. For those of you who are listening, um, just so I can give Sam a little more time to elaborate, um, if, uh, you know, if you want, of course, tune in afterwards to the archive, and uh, you'll be able to hear the entire conversation there. Um, and uh, once again, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, um, and you can Google search World Water Wars, uh, Blue Gold World Water Wars, to learn more about this film, and I highly recommend that you watch it. Um, but um, now, Sam, i got to ask, uh, you, know, th- you know, as you said, it was surreal. It's one of the things that's interesting about it is that I still learned a lot from both films. You could fill two full documentaries yeah. <laughs> on this subject, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, it's not like I ever, I watch one in exclusion of the other or anything like no, that, you no, know. Exactly. It's amazing it's that you could get so much information about this one problem. I never ran, it was easy, it was scary, it was just frightening how easy it was to find 
stories of water depletion and water conflict. Uh, it was about picking and choosing. But everywhere you went around the world, in America too, people have these stories, and unfortunately they'll continue to. Now that's a question actually I did want to ask that I generally ask every filmmaker. Now, since you've made the film, have there been any developments or anything that you wish that you had known about when you had made the film um, that you wish that, you know, like, like now, for example, like if you were to perhaps make a sequel or even just a, a you know, a deleted scene section to add on an addendum to your film, was there anything new that you stumbled across that you wish you had known about when you made Blue Gold? Not so much, but I, you know, I again wish I could even make a whole film about the blue alternative. You know, the solution here is putting the water back in the ground where it came from and living in balance with what groundwater we pump and what we use. If there's water around our home, then there's nothing to privatize. There's nothing to hold against us. We can always dig a well. Um, it's when we allow giant factories to pump up more water than can be put back in that we get into this problem. So replenishing the groundwater by terracing the land, building cities that capture water and put it back in the ground. Uh, you know, you could do a, I could do a whole film on that and maybe will. I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, that's the solution in this case. That actually sounds like a great idea. Um, and it's, you know, I, I do hope that, uh, you know, we get an opportunity to, you know, perhaps to, you know, interact with you at some point, uh, further as far as like a, you know, pair of movements, um, you know, the Venus Project tries to spread awareness of, of these kinds of solutions that you're suggesting. Um, and, you know, it proposes a redesign of, of human culture so that this sort of thing is just how it's done from now on. It's not a question of, of if and when. It's if, if something is not ecologically sound, then it just doesn't get done in the first place. Right. You know, That's great. No, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Excellent. Well, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, the, so basically, I mean, is that is that a possibility? Are you going to do that as a project? I mean, is, can we look forward to a sequel to Blue Gold? No. Uh, well, you know, at one point, the Blue Alternative, uh, the guy in it, uh, Dr. Kravchik from Slovakia, who invented, you know, or did this project in Slovakia as an alternative for a dam and terraced the land so that the water went back in the ground and said, see, we have enough water. He was proposing to Saudi Arabia to be the first country to do this because a desert is not a permanent place, and I didn't know that either. I mean, he... To act, and they have the money from oil to actually be able to do it, but it hasn't come about yet. And if it had, then he was going to have, I was going to join him there for that. And that would be amazing if that ever happened. But outside of something that big happening, I kind of feel I've done all I can with the film and just uh, the site now. I get interactions every day and I have all these solutions on my website in an action plan section. So, you know, I'm expanding it that way. But I have gone back to the sequel to Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, which will deal with all these same stories. In fact, you know, many of them from Blue Gold, uh, but in a fiction form. So I'm still with it that way. Ironically, that's sometimes the best way to reach people. I mean, I, uh, for example, like the Wachowski Brothers film, V for Vendetta, is a large part of the reason that I'm, you know, involved with activism. And it was a total work of fiction. But, right. you know, it inspired me to think about things from that perspective. Um, you know, and uh, that's actually why the, the show is called V Radio. It's the reason that my, my call sign on the Internet is VTV. is from the, the segment of the film where V takes control of the, the television, and there's a little VTV icon in the lower right-hand corner. Um, and my old video show, um, back in the days of Ron Paul TV, we were doing like a lot of that. I, basically, I would play a documentary uh, using technology like Justin TV or you know, things like that. And then, you know, my show was like, we let's watch a documentary and then let's have a talk show about the documentary we've just watched. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I've looked at a lot of this stuff, and it, it almost seems that's actually, you know, you know, you said why isn't this on the news? I mean, did you get any attention for Blue Gold? I mean, did, did it? Did you ever get any invitations to be on CNN or whatever to talk about it? Yeah, great thing is um, Am- Amanpour on on CNN used clips of it, um, a clip of it in in her broadcast on water. Um, and then there's a show called Conspiracy Theory, um, which is going to focus on water, and that's uh, and I interviewed with that just last week. So hopefully, uh, uh, those were the bigger news segments. And of course, it's on Sundance Channel now, um, and it's been on video from PBS for a while. And Netflix watched instantly. It gets a lot of viewing there. But yes, Amapur did use the clips and then also this conspiracy theory show. But yeah, you would think, um, you know, there'd be more news in general. But uh, I I don't know what's going on in that world. Uh, They seem to not report about a lot of important things. Netflix is actually, uh, Watch Instantly is where I generally watch your film, actually. Uh, The first time I saw it, it was there. I love that service. I actually just turned off my cable entirely. I don't I don't have cable. Yeah. I have a little box that's connected to my computer that's in the living room that allows me to play films on my living room television with my stereo sound and everything hooked up. And yeah. I, I've never looked back. Uh, <laughs> so much good programming, you know, and you get to choose whatever it is. Your kids don't get brainwashed by a bunch of commercials. And right. it's, it's, it's a great alternative, and I suggest that to people all the time, is that, you know, don't be afraid of your television. Just take it back. Make it yours. Put on exactly. it only what you want on it. Um, and uh, that's why I'm looking forward to the days, you know, my children are, are four and are three now, um, and I'm looking forward to the days when I'll be able to sit down and watch films like yours, um, you know, with my children and expose them to these things. Because I wish I had known about this stuff when I was much younger. Um, and I, I, and there was so much wasted time in my life I could have been doing something different. Now, I guess the last question I'm going to ask you, I mean, you know, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, where, do you have any other projects that are along the lines of Blue Gold, the same kind of, you know, semi-activist message of, you know, exposing, you know, certain problems, or, you know, or is that pretty much it? Was that was that your hurrah? Or well, I actually had done one, uh, one documentary before called The Hackers Wanted about cyber terrorism in the computer world, and and these people, uh, helpful hackers who are out there um, breaking into the Pentagon and then turning around and calling the Pentagon and saying, look, I broke in, Let me, you, know, you need to fix that. But then they themselves get arrested. And the whole computer world of how everything's dependent on computers and yet it's very insecure. I did that with uh, Kevin Spacey's Trigger Street Company, but uh, they didn't release it, um, I, you know, and there's many reasons for that, but you can Google that as well. So, I mean, I did that, and then this documentary, I, it's a lot of work documentaries, and um, I need, you know, after doing water, I, I kind of sit there and go, what, what could be more important than this that I could get behind? Once you, once I delve into that, it's like I sort of feel I've, I've hit so many uh, topics within water because it, it, it ties into everything political and, and, and so on. So, really, I've gone back to screenwriting and, and that science fiction film I talked about with water. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, as the focus. Yeah, that's, I think, I mean, God, uh, films that were like that, uh, The Ice Pirates, did you ever watch that? No. Uh, first film I ever watched on cable as a kid, it's called The Ice Pirates, and it's uh, it's about, uh, uh, basically, the galaxy is running out of water. Uh, oh, I'll look for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a comedy, mind you, I mean, it's, right, it's, right. it's an action comedy, but it was very entertaining, and, you know, they, the whole movie, they're trying to find this, this world 
this planet, this mythical planet, you know, that's, you know, that, that has water on it because uh, some kind of major disaster happened in the galaxy and evaporated the majority of the water on the planet. Um, but yeah, the ice pirates was the first film I ever remember, you know, people fighting with floating over water. I watched that on HBO back when I was probably like a nine, I'm like six or seven. I don't remember, but anyway, if you haven't seen man who fell to earth, it's a great one. Um, it sounds like, it sounds like it is man. Who fell to earth. It's incredible. What's great about that. And what I think you'd like is, you know, yeah, the aliens are coming here for water, but he knows exactly what to do. They've studied us enough that, he gets a patent lawyer immediately, patents technology so that he can make money. And everything, we're t- all the problems we have with politics and, and you know, corporate uh, relationships are also addressed in the film. And, and, you know, we're trying to bring that to the next level with a sequel. So uh, that's exciting. Well, like they said in V for Vendetta, artists use lies to tell the truth. Um, there you go. <laughs> so... Thank you very much for coming on. Um, I mean, I know I told you I was, you were only going to be here for an hour. I only kept you for an extra eight minutes. I just I didn't right. feel like when the when the blog talk was finishing up that you know we had really reached a good closure point. I didn't want to right. interrupt us there. Um, you know, but I really look forward to seeing more of your work. And um, if you ever uh, come across anything that you want you know ex- you know to give more exposure to, please don't hesitate to get in contact with me. I'll be happy to do a, a show about it. Um, Sounds great. I will. Um, and uh, thank you for making that film. Uh, you were talking about how students have been impacted. Uh, uh, a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, she's a geologist, and uh, from watching your film, she decided to also get into hydrology to understand about water. Um, Those are the most rewarding things to hear. I mean, when you realize that you won't find in fiction so much as you know you're really dealing with reality and making changes in people. That, that's great. I get the same thing sometimes about my radio show, and it's one yeah. of the reasons I keep doing it. Um, but yeah, it's it just it's my contribution in itself because you know my life's pretty simple. Um, you know, I'm low on the economy scale, and I'm a stay-at-home father. You know, uh, I rent rooms to borders to keep my money flowing, but because I want to take better care of my children and watch them, and you know, be very careful about what they're exposed to, just to make sure that they grow up to be good, critical thinking, independent-minded adults. You know, it, it does put me in a position, though, where my activism is therefore kind of limited to my computer chair. <laughs> so, hey, but that's in this world, you know, like I did the computer hackers, right? That's the, that's the portal to the world. So, you know, you're, you can reach out to the world on the computer. So well, that's, uh, that's a great what I'm to do with V Radio. And thank you again for being on. Now, can you give them a, a, a website or anything to sure. check out your stuff? Yeah, um, www.bluegold.com worldwaterwars.com or you can look up uh, Blue Gold on Facebook or just Google Blue Gold if that's too long to remember. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much for being on Mr. Bazo and um, keep in touch. You know, if uh, you do end up doing that extra project you were talking about about water solutions um, or even if you'd be willing, for example, to write an article for the Zeitgeist Movement newsletter that goes out to about 470,000 people and I'm an editor, be happy. Oh, that'd be great. If yeah, you could uh, put it out that way. Um, be happy to help you with that project. It'd be great to have you on. So, just um, you know, like I said, keep in touch, and uh, you know, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. And uh, all right, uh, to my listeners of V Radio, uh, once again, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, and consider a donation to help me stay on the air. Um, and uh, I will continue to bring you good quality programming like the ones that you're getting now. Uh, I'm going to leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows, 
And this is John Prescott. And you're listening to V Radio.